So this brings me to my final talk uh, in this retreat and the third topic of our theme which was great faith, great doubt and now great courage. And in many ways I think the courage serves as the as what ties together, what integrates faith and doubt, which in many ways somehow stand in attention to each other. The confidence of faith, coupled with the uncertainty of doubt. And to live with that tension of confidence and trust on the one hand, uncertainty and doubt on the other, requires courage. The easy solution would be to simply adopt a faith in which doubt was expelled, doubt was not allowed in, but as we saw that would be a kind of blind faith a kind of static faith. And I guess the other option would be to be so um, taken over by uncertainty and doubt that one simply devolves into a kind of meaningless, nihilistic uh, scepticism. Not the scepticism of the Greeks, but contemporary Scepticism, where one simply cannot make up one's mind what to do. One is overwhelmed, perhaps, by the, the meaninglessness of life. And that leads, likewise, to a kind of lassitude and, in some ways, perhaps to a kind of despair. So, by bringing courage into the picture we are saying to ourselves really that we are both willing to trust and willing to go beyond our limitations to long for some resolution or fulfilment in life but at the same time not to lose our open-minded ability to hold whatever is happening in question. To be able to be amazed, to be uncertain, to doubt. Have we got the courage to hold those two strands together? And that, as I said at the beginning of the retreat, is arguably the, the engine or the, dy the dynamo, the dynamism that drives the practice itself. Let's see what Agnes Martin has to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> this is from uh, the opening lines of her short essay called What We Do Not See If We Do Not See. 
she says, we all believe in life. We feel a certain devotion. We feel called upon to live a good as life as we can. We feel that we are in the dark and that even in darkness we must struggle to know what is best to do. We feel that we should not live just in the same way as our ancestors lived. We feel that we should take a step forward. We know that this step will be in the dark and will require courage. And again, here we can see these three elements almost stated um, explicitly. We all believe in life. We feel a certain devotion. We feel called upon to live as good a life as we can. That is faith, a life of faith to be called upon to live a good as life as we can. But we feel that we are in the dark and that even in darkness we must struggle to know what is best to do. So the darkness again is the uncertainty, the confusion, the bewilderment. But we shouldn't just keep repeating what's been done in the past by our ancestors, by those we admire, historical figures. We feel that we have to take a step forward, and a step forward that is our own step, not just the repetition of someone else's steps. But to be able to take this step in the dark will require courage. Very much the same sort of tensions we find here in this text of, a, of an artist as we find in this classic formulation from Zen Buddhism. So let's just uh, start by, by reflecting on the word courage itself. Again, one of these terms that is certainly not uh, unfamiliar. We all know what courage is. Uh, we use the word all the time. We admire, we generally tend to admire people who exhibit or display courage. Courage, in some senses, is a kind of bravery, a fortitude, a willingness to face pain, and hardship and even death. In our culture, in many cultures, the courageous person is often represented by the soldier, the person who's willing to go into battle to face an enemy out of a conviction of what the soldier stands for, what the soldier's society stands for and be willing to sacrifice one's life. And this, in many ways, is a profoundly courageous thing to do. That doesn't mean the soldier lacks fear. The soldier might be utterly terrified. 
but the courage uh, for whatever reasons and wherever it comes from is what enables him or her to overcome that fear. So courage is about overcoming fear. But we've spoken of, of this kind of physical courage. But we also admire people who exhibit uh, moral courage. For many of us this might be a, a deeper form of courage. The courage to, to act in the right way in the face of popular opposition, for example. The willingness to do something that might cause us all kinds of trouble, that might create a scandal, that might discourage those who otherwise admire us. Or it might incur great personal loss. You know, if I stand by my principles, I refuse to do something that my company wants me to do because of some ethical objection, for example, if I take a stand in that way, it may be at the cost of my own benefits, my own standing, my status, my wealth, and yet I feel so strongly about the principles at stake as to what I consider to be good and not just good in a general or abstract sense, but a non-negotiable good. Whatever happens, I'm not going to portray that principle. I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to abuse, I'm not going to lie. And I'm going to stand by that. And that, very often, particularly if you are the only person in your company or your community who is, is, is willing to take that stand uh, can feel incredibly lonely. Um, you feel unsupported. You may have great doubts about whether you're even right. But there's something deep down within you that says, no, I can't do that. That is wrong. And this is moral courage. We see it amongst Politicians, sometimes. We see it in religious leaders, sometimes. But we also see it played out in the lives of ordinary men and women um, who have no great standing in society but sometimes are willing to take a stance that no one else is willing to take. They're willing somehow to stand for a value in spite of whatever ridicule or condemnation it might incur. But I think we can also talk about existential courage. Existential courage, I think, could be defined as a willingness to change the way we live. To um, recognize that how I've been living my life so far has not actually enabled me to realize the capacities that I feel I have. We might feel that our life, in fact, is not 
in some sense, even really and truly our own. It's the life that our parents wanted us to lead. It's the life that is generally admired in the kind of society we live in. It's a life that provides us with material security and we're not willing to embrace insecurity. We were having a, a conversation the other day at home with um, my, uh, my nephew, Martin's nephew, and his wife. And they're working class people in France, good people, um, and kind of curious about how Martine and I have chosen to live. It doesn't quite fit their um, picture of what you do. And they're both kind of impressed at one level that we gave up a conventional life at a young age and went off to Asia and became a monk and a nun and now we live running around the world leading meditation retreats. This doesn't simply doesn't compute in their world view. And the wife, whom I'm very fond of, uh, said something that really struck me. She said, what I cannot understand is how um, you could um, forsake or how you could live without the guarantee of a paycheck at the end of the month to pay the rent. That was her big fear. Something she couldn't go beyond. She said she simply could not imagine putting herself in a situation where there would be that degree of financial insecurity. Not knowing if she could pay the rent and the health insurance and buying food and so forth and so on. And she found it therefore quite difficult to grasp how Martine and I had led the lives we had and do still. And that was kind of a revelation in a way. Because living in the sort of culture that we inhabit at places like this, it's not so unusual that people give up their jobs and go to India and do silly things like that. Um, but we forget, or I forget, that for probably the vast majority of people in our society, um, that's a kind of crazy thing to want to do. And it's very risky. Um, when I became a monk uh, at the age of 21, and I wrote an... Oh, we didn't have email then, we didn't have Skype... I wrote an aerogram <laughs> um, uh, to my mother uh, to tell her my decision. Um, Dear mum, I've just become a Tibetan Buddhist mum. <laughs> and um, what really terrified her more than anything else was how I would provide for myself in my old age. How I would be able to build a career on being a Buddhist monk. Uh, she was terrified. And I felt very bad about that. I didn't want to upset her, obviously. And as it turns out, 
she didn't actually have to worry so much. But it's interesting, again, to observe those kinds of reactions. <coughs> so this kind of courage, I think, is not really quite the same as moral courage. It's not really a physical courage, although there are elements of both involved. But it's a courage to change your life, to live differently, not just in a superficial way, to get a, to move to another country or to get another job, but to actually reconsider the foundations of what constitutes meaning in your life. To be able to say, no, I'm not going to go down this conventional education and career track that is that my society basically is directing everybody to go. I'm going to trust something which is an intuition. Maybe it's naive, maybe it's idealistic, but it rings true to me in a way that I cannot ignore. That's where I'm going to live from. And to then, you know, act that out. And, of course, when you're young, in your early 20s, You've always got an opt-out clause. If you get to be 23, 24 and you decide to change your mind, well, you could do that. You can come back home, you can go to university, you can get a degree, you can get a job. But with each year that passes on the Buddhist monk trajectory, <laughs> you burn another bridge, as it were. And when you start getting to be 30 or 40, you're pretty much and scuppered your other options. And you, you see that in advance, particularly when your family are expressing precisely those concerns. <laughs> so arguably this kind of existential courage um, might be the most demanding in a way. It um, requires the we think differently, we uh, communicate differently, we adopt a set of values that may not be the ones that are foremost in the culture in which we were brought up. You embrace something foreign in the case of Buddhism. And you are very much aware of the risks involved. And I can certainly attest to periods of my life when I was a young monk when I went through enormous uh, bouts of anxiety and anguish and doubt and fear moments when I thought you know this is crazy doing this you know, memorizing texts on Tibetan logic this is a nutty thing to be doing <laughs> but I feel that what perhaps gives one uh, additional courage to pursue such a life is the example of uh, the founder of the tradition itself, namely the Buddha. And we already looked at the legend of the young prince or the young man, Gautama, who leaves his, his comfortable upbringing, his palatial existence sees a sick person, an old person, a corpse, 
and a wandering monk and is so um, shaken by these existential insights about his own death, his own aging, his own capacity for sickness, that he's inspired by the figure of the wandering monk to pursue another course of life. Now this legend, this story, is I think a very good illustration of existential courage. It's not moral courage particularly, nor is it physical courage. But it's a courage to, uh, to be true to these deep questions of life and death. To feel the urgency of those questions in your bones. And to live accordingly, not to sort of cop out. Go back to the comforts of your palace in this case. But actually to discard your well-being, your family, your privileges, your wealth, your power, and set out on a quest with no guarantees at all that you will find some answer or some resolution to your questions. And as I've already mentioned in the last talk, this is actually a parable that speaks very much to what we're doing here on this retreat. Having the courage to face these deep questions of life and death with no guarantee of any particular outcome, but nonetheless something that one part of us at least cannot not do. And again, it mean, it's not necessarily just to do in this case with a particular form of Buddhist meditation, Zen. I think it's true of any life, uh, any form of practice that calls upon our deepest sense of what our life is or could be about. And I feel that this retreat, asking ourselves, what is this? Acknowledging that we don't know what this is or we don't know what to do, how to live. That this provides a kind of crucible in which we can cultivate this existential courage. This courage to keep focused on these ultimate concerns in such a way that our life begins to move on a different track to the one to which we were accustomed. It's about embarking on a, another way of life, really. And this is called renunciation. Renunciation is not, though, simply a matter of renouncing a particular situation in, in our existence, like our family or our job or something like that. That's relatively easy at some level to renounce, uh, particularly if we don't enjoy our job or 
where we live. But renunciation really has got very little to do with that. Renunciation has to do with leaving behind or letting go of certain uh, impulses, certain patterns of habitual behaviour, certain comforting beliefs that we might hold. The willingness to let go of that. The willingness to um, no longer lead a life that is prompted and driven by our desires and our fears and our dislikes and our ambitions and our pride. To renounce, to let go of these things is what is required for an act of existential courage. And we can think of this in that broader, somewhat abstract sense in which I've been talking of it. But I think we can also boil it down to particular moments in our meditation. Do we have the courage to let go of certain thoughts that are coming up in our minds, that are obsessing us, that are worrying us? Do we have the courage to let go of a particularly enticing fantasy that has taken hold of us? Renunciation is not going on in the abstract, but it's realised through many, many small moments of letting go. Letting go of an anxiety. That doesn't mean that you suppress it or reject it, but you don't let it somehow fester and take hold of your feelings and your thoughts in such a way that it's got you in its grip, got you trapped in some way. So this kind of courage is something that we can practice on the cushion. We can practice moment to moment when we catch ourselves being held back, being preoccupied with something that even we recognise as not truly worthy of the kind of person we could be. It doesn't really accord with our vision of the kind of person I aspire to, uh, to, uh, to live as. So it's a constant practice, this renunciation. It goes very much back to what I was talking of yesterday morning about fear. Courage and fear go hand in hand. Courage is the power of mind in a way that has the capacity to overcome fear, to not give in to fear. It doesn't mean that it's some magical state in which fear will disappear. The fear might be there, like the soldier on the battlefield. Plenty of fear. But there's a capacity within that person, within the meditator, uh, to be able to go forward in spite of the fear, the anxiety, and so on.
And this leads us very much, I think, to a willingness to take risks. One could even say, I think, that this path that we embark upon is an ethical path in that we are choosing to live according to principles and values that are not just the habits we were born with. We're consciously choosing to carve out a life that we are um, consciously choosing to live in spite of opposition, in spite of people making fun of us. But at the same time, such an ethical life is also one in which we acknowledge uh, the fact that we don't really know what the outcome of our choices and our words and our deeds will be. Uh, we confront the situations in life and to do so courageously means to have the willingness to respond to them in a way that might be shocking, a way that might be disapproved of by others. But nonetheless, we take the risk of saying that difficult thing to a friend. We take that risk of making a stand morally. And we try more and more to live from that, that deeper inner sense of what truly matters for us. At the beginning of this, uh, these talks, I mentioned the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich. And in the first talk about faith, I mentioned his book, The Dynamics of Faith. He's far better known, however, for another short book he wrote for a general uh, readership called The Courage to Be. I read this book back in the 70s and it had a, a very powerful impact on me. Um, this is Tillich uh, himself speaking about what he means. He says, The Courage to Be is the ethical act in which a person affirms his own being in spite of those elements of his life which conflict with his essential self-affirmation. I know that's rather technical <coughs> language. It's interesting, though, that he immediately sees this courage as an ethical act. It has to do with what drives us to lead a life that accords with how we aspire to be, of what we consider to be the good. And this process is a process of self-affirmation. In other words, we're affirming what we as a person most deeply hold as true and good. And we act according to that even when other elements of our life, and as Buddhists we would say greed, attachment, fear, hatred, pride and so on, even when those 
aspects of our life are, are desperately pulling us in the opposite direction. This courage to be is, in many ways, a struggle. A struggle to remain true to what we feel is essential to be fully human, that is so often in conflict with other elements that are just as much part of who we are, but seem to hold us back, that seem to keep us going round and round in circles, that keep us in what we now call uh, our safety zone, where it's comfortable, where we don't really feel as much risk involved. So this courage to be is also an a deep affirmation of who we are and what we aspire to become. And the consequence of that, for Tilly, is our moments of deep joy. He says, the affirmation of one's essential being, in spite of desires and anxieties, creates joy. Joy is the emotional expression of the courageous yes to one's own true being. In other words, it might be difficult, it might be painful to respond in this risky way. But in the end, when we realise that courage... It's not only an affirmation, it is also a very positive, joyous sense that yes, I've lived truly in that moment. I've done my utter best. And it's a, a deep feeling of good that you've done good in this world for yourself, for others. So courage uh, is about also facing anxiety. And anxiety is one of these ideas that um, has been much reflected upon in modern philosophy um, and psychology. And it's often distinguished from fear. Fear is usually understood as fear when we're frightened about a particular thing, like we're frightened about you know, the, you know, being attacked by somebody, or we're frightened about being alone um, in a dangerous place. And fear can be overcome by getting rid of what it is that you're frightened of. If you switch on the light in a dark room, the child will no longer be frightened. So fear very often has a specific object about which you are frightened. And that fear can then be resolved by removing the thing that frightens you. Anxiety is a feeling of fear that does not have a specific object. It's a kind of objectless anxiety uh, about life as as a whole um, it's an anxiety about the, 
the possibility of your own death, for example. Uh, it, sometimes it's an anxiety which is very much present within us, but we cannot find anything in our actual life that can account for it. There's nothing specific we're anxious about. We just feel anxious. It's a kind of existential angst. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's an anxiety about the impermanent, the changing, the contingent, the unreliable, the unpredictable nature of the condition in which we live. It's to be anxious about life itself. Life is something that is constantly running the risk of slipping away. So again, this existential courage is a courage that's willing to face up to this anxiety. A willingness to embrace that anxiety as a part of our condition as human beings that cannot be eradicated unless we eradicate our life itself. So it's about living with this uncertainty, this anxiety, which again brings us back to our what is this. There is something about what is this that can provoke not just fear in the sense of a, you know, being frightened of something, but maybe more accurately, it's, it's, the, it's anxiety producing rather than fear producing. Um, we become uncertain about who we are. We become uncertain about uh, the world in which we live. And the emotional response to that can very often be a kind of unsettledness or a disquiet or an anxiety. So, this existential courage, therefore, uh, has the you know has the capacity or has the character of being able to say yes to a life that is not permanent, that is not guaranteeing us happiness or security, but a life that is uh, endlessly uncertain. Our own life is endlessly uncertain. This courage is our capacity to say yes not only to life, but also to death, with the understanding that life and death are really inseparable. That life is constantly running out and entropically descending into its own end, its own death. To be able to say yes to that, to be able to ask what is this? To be able to say, I don't know. And yet to be able to hold that awareness in a still, contemplative, <coughs> lucid awareness. That's essentially what we're doing when we practice here on a retreat like this. It's also... It's not just a courage to be able to accept 
the situation we're in. It's also a courage to live differently on the basis of that awareness. This brings to mind um, a famous expression that was used by Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, sapere aude, dare to know, have the courage to know, dare to know, dare to think for yourself, dare to be autonomous in your ideas, in your choices, dare to be who you really are, rather than simply taking on faith what tradition has maintained to be true. Now this sapere aude uh, for Kant and others became the motto of the European Enlightenment. The European Enlightenment was a radical break with the authority of the Church. It was a willingness to not assume the revealed truths of Judeo-Christianity or we might say the revealed truths of Buddhism are the final word on the nature of what is true because they're the revelation of God or because they're the teachings of an enlightened being therefore there's nothing more to be known than that it's a question of surrendering your own autonomy and taking on trust the truths that tradition has revealed and what this enlightenment this European enlightenment of course led to was the whole emergence of the scientific endeavour to dare to know other than the way that religion and tradition have told you uh, about things to think for yourself and also to think as a community of researchers and inquirers and so much of what we enjoy and take for granted in our world today is the result of people at the time of, of Kant in the 17th, 18th century who were willing and had the courage to take these steps um, to look at the world according to evidence and reason rather than religious authority. In many ways, I think Buddhism, as a religion, is still somehow stuck in a pre-enlightenment mode. Many Buddhist teachers accept on trust what the suttas, the discourses, the Buddhist tradition says, and are not willing to budge from those positions. So if you start questioning things like rebirth, or the law of karma, or different realms of existence, or people who can levitate and so on, um, you're considered somehow to be betraying or going against the revelation of the Dharma that has come down to us through these lineages of teachers. But I feel 
in many ways that Buddhism needs the kind of reformation that we had in Christianity and arguably it needs us to be willing to know in ways that are driven by our own experience, by our own rationality, by our own observations, by our own capacity to gain insight into our lives, into the world, without always falling back and justifying ourselves in terms of the Buddhist tradition. And I'll stop there. Um, otherwise I could go on, but in some ways this, I feel, brings me full circle to where we began. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.